So let's just make a little transition here, and I'm going to invite you to find Acts chapter 7, and uh, we've entitled our message today, well, it's part of a little series uh, Pastor Nick is doing, and he asked me to speak on this section of scripture. I've entitled today's message, The Significance of Stephen's Sermon. It's from Acts chapter 7, verses 45 through 50. I'm going to do a little background work here in a moment, but I've decided on this theme of this idea would be why a house when God is at home in us? Why would you want a house with its limitations when God is at home with us always? Why would you replace the life-changing presence of God in your life through the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? John prayed about that this morning. Why would you trade that for the rituals of a religious system? Doesn't make sense. We get Christ. When you came to Christ, you got Christ. Why settle for a substitute, right? So I want to thank Nick. We've already talked about it a little bit uh, for putting me up to this speaking challenge in this text. Uh, it's been a wonderful challenge. It took me a while to wrap my mind around just that a small amount of text uh, from Stephen's sermon, but I discovered in the process that the entirety of Scripture, literally the entirety of Scripture, can be zoomed down into Stephen's words. And with that, our, my message today then is about five hours long. Not, we'll try not to be there. But uh, I do want to begin with two statements, I think just to help me and maybe to help you as we wrap our mind around this. But here's the first statement. The underlying message of Scripture and the point Stephen tries to make in his sermon is that the presence of God has always been with his people. He doesn't need a home to live in, although for a time he used the tent as a temporary guide and motivator uh, for the Israelites as his plan of redemption unfolded. However, we know from Scripture and from our own experience the best manifestation of God's presence in Jews and Gentiles alike is the presence that we find in us in the person of Jesus Christ in the Spirit. When we got saved, we got Jesus. We talk about the benefits, but we get Jesus. He himself is eternal life. John 3, 16, our famous verse, talks about that we do not perish, but we have eternal life. John 17 in his prayer, verse 3, says this is eternal life, that you get to know God and his son. Eternal life is wrapped up in Christ. In John, uh, his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, he talks about uh, the idea that God gave us eternal life, and that life is in his son. When we got saved, when we trust Christ, we get Christ. We get the indwelling spirit of Christ. The second statement is this, a little different. God provided the tabernacle in the Old Testament, if you're uh, familiar with that at all, with, with the children of Israel being led out of slavery in Egypt and led by Moses and given the commandments and they are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God sets up the law and the tabernacle and their sacrificial system uh, to go along with that. But God provided that tabernacle or tent as a representation and a reassurance of his presence with his people. But he never intended the tabernacle to replace him. 
the entire system that is the law and all of its regulations related to it and related to the tabernacle itself were designed to help them, the Israelites, uh, live daily in light of a temporary atonement system that would provide for their sin need and then yet ultimately point them to the plan of redemption. This building, folks, I know you're sitting down here, this building is not God's house. Um, it's a place of worship, right? We get together with God here uh, to meet in public corporate worship. It's a place of worship, but so is a hill, so is a barn, so is a boat or an outdoor chapel or a beachfront because God's spirit, Jesus says those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, uh, I think this idea, in accordance with the big picture of scripture, you can't live as if God or his word doesn't exist Monday through Saturday and then show up on Sunday thinking that somehow you're coming into a sacred building and then live as if you're living for God just that day. It doesn't work. God never intended that uh, to be the case. Distorted thinking about church buildings has created lots of well-intended but misguided practices and prayers. Thank you, Lord, for letting us come to your house today so we can be with you today. It's not accurate, right? Uh, the building is, uh, we want to care for the building. We want to respect the building. There's been a lot of kids, including myself, that have gotten in trouble for running around in the building, right? Because somehow we think the building itself is sacred or there's something holy about it or that God himself lives in our building. But we know that's not true. He lives in us. That's why Corinthians tells us that, that uh, we're, our bodies are the temple of God. Back in 2017, we had a camper, a uh, little guy came to one of our, our counselors and, and discovered and said, you mean I can talk to God at camp? I don't have to be at my church to talk to God? And we explained that, and that you'd have thought he won the lottery or something, right? Because think about that. He's at camp. He's outside, he's playing baseball, whatever, and he thinks, I can only talk to God in this building. That's unfortunate, right? And I think that's part of what Stephen is getting at, where the, the Jewish religious leaders had distorted their thinking about where the presence of God uh, exists. I want to say this, too, just in the way of introduction. The best thing we can do is recognize that God, in his sovereign plan, did us a favor by allowing his, uh, uh, his son, who rose from the dead, to ascend back to heaven at the right hand of God and to give us someone just like him, his Holy Spirit, who indwells us. That, that was a favor for us, that we have the ever-present indwelling, uh, ever-present indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we sense and know that God is with us at all times. If Jesus had... Uh, risen from the dead and didn't ascend, we would all be trying to live in Israel so that we could get a glimpse of Jesus, right, and his limited body. But he's ascended at the right hand of God as a high priest and intercessor and advocate for us, and we have the benefit of his presence 
in his spirit in us, dwelling in us as we uh, trust and follow Christ. It, it's, it's a great advantage we have over the Old Testament saints uh, and some of the struggles they had. And I think that's why they were so attached to the temple. They somehow thought they had to be by the temple in order to be closer to God. David struggled with that. One day in your house is better than a thousand anywhere else. We get every day because God dwells in our house, in our temple, right? Let me give you a little background on the text. We are going to be looking at verses 45 through 50, but I just want to kind of recap a little bit. Um, try to correct Nick's mistake. No, I don't want to do that by no means. But uh, just to maybe, if you haven't been here, just to give us a little review uh, here. So in chapter 6, the church is growing. It's starting to face persecution. And as the church grows, it needs more helpers. And we get from that text the calling of the first helper, Stephen, of which is one of those. That text doesn't call them deacons. Later on, the, the word deacon is used. And most the theologians think that probably uh, because the word to deek means to serve, uh, probably is, is that's what their role is, so that they could help the widows, and that allowed the apostles to focus more on uh, the word of God. So Stephen was part of that church. He was serving in a growing church. He experienced a transforming work and power of the gospel. He had come to faith in Christ. This is the first mention of him uh, that we know of. And it says here in that text that he was a man of good reputation. He was full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Uh, it says that he was full of faith in the spirit and full of grace and power. God had enabled him through the work of the spirit to uh, take what he understood about the Old Testament text and see that in light of the work of Christ. And he himself had experienced the fact that he was in Christ. 150 times in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we, as Christ followers, are in Christ. We have Christ dwelling in us through his spirit. Stephen experienced that. And so he's doing his ministry, going about, and he finds himself in a dispute with some religious leaders. He wins the debate, and they couldn't, well, they couldn't stand against his wisdom and spirit, the text says. And so they create falsehood, and they bring him to uh, a court system, if you will, and they accuse him of blasphemy in verses, chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. These false accusers claim him, uh, accuse him of blasphemy, blasphemy against Moses and against God, blasphemy against the temple and the law, and then ultimately blasphemy because he quotes Jesus uh, and he declares, Jesus de uh, declared that he would destroy the temple, replace it in three days, and Stephen refers to that, and so they point fingers at Stephen and uh, they accuse him of saying that this place is no longer sacred and that they are distorting our customs. And so these accusers came to uh, the court system before the Sanhedrin and uh, they make these accusations of him. And it's the same charges, folks, uh, the religious leaders made against Jesus. Stephen is clearly pointing to Jesus as God. Jesus himself declares that he's God. 
how in the world did they miss it? How could they study the Old Testament? How could they not see all the pointing to the Messiah and then connect Jesus as the Messiah? How did they miss that? Well, the only answer that I think we can give is that Satan blinded their eyes. And he does the same thing uh, today. So Stephen makes his defense, and we then have chapter 7 here, and they give him an opportunity, because basically he's guilty, and they just want to say, hey, do you have anything you want to say about that? So he spends about 51 verses in a what people would call a sermon uh, here defending himself. He's a student of Hebrew history. He knows his Old Testament. He knows Jewish history. It's a long speech that I think gets cut off, short, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But his big idea is this. God has been with his people throughout time without the aid of a structure. He's not condemning the tabernacle in light of its historical significance. He's condemning the religious leader's rejection of the truth that Christ has come to be their ultimate salvation. He gives an argument, Nick's already preached on that, that that God was with Abraham, that God was with Joseph through verses 19, that God was with Moses and and in the law through verses 43. And then we get to verse 44, and God doesn't need, his argument is that God doesn't need a temple because God is with us in the person of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We sing about that at Christmas in light of Isaiah's prophecy that a child would be born to a virgin. And there, there is a literal uh, child born, but then it also is a picture uh, of, and related to a prophecy of Christ. And we know Matthew tells us that his name shall be called Emmanuel in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. God with us, we don't need, God is with us, we don't need a tent. We don't need a temple. We don't need a tabernacle. So one of the things that I question is why in the world Luke spends all this time talking about Stephen, right, and records his message in that. Um, Stephen is the first martyr, we know, um, and we think that's why Luke has recorded it, because the Lord knows there's going to be many more, and we don't hear about many of the other ones, right? But uh, I think what happens here is that God, through the inspiration that he allowed Luke to write the text, is giving us an an eternal example of grace under fire. He's given us an example of what it's like uh, for someone to respond being controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit in light of of, uh, uh, difficulty. It's a lesson that we see in the contrast between religion and relationship, the battle that still goes on today. Uh, between believing something that's not true and believing in the truth provider, Jesus Christ. It's also an encouragement to those who would follow, right, that they too could get through difficult times um, as Stephen did. So let's look at the text then, and I think it's going to be on the, on, the, on the screen for you here. This is Stephen's final argument before the Sanhedrin in his defense. His point is this, we, got, we, get, we, get, I'm sorry, we get God himself. And he, it's like he's saying, why would you want to settle for anything else? Why would you worship a replica instead of the real thing? Why live for an empty home 
or an empty house when we can live in the house with the king? Wouldn't you prefer to be with the king than the same home? Why would we worship Moses, who is only a type of the true deliverer, and not surrender to the redeemer that all scripture speaks of? Why create a limit, limitation on the presence of God when God himself never insists on the limitation? As we look at this, I want you to note that his sermon um, is, is not much a sermon as it is uh, his, the idea of an indictment on the religious leaders. This is Frank Gabeline from his uh, commentary, uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary. He says this. The defense of Stephen before the Sanhedrin is hardly a defense in the sense of an explanation or apology calculated to win an acquittal. Stephen's not trying to win the trial. Rather, it is a proclamation of the Christian message in terms of the popular Judaism of the day and an indictment on the Jewish leaders for their failure to recognize Jesus of, of Nazareth as their Messiah or to recognize or to appreciate the salvation that Jesus provided. He's indicting them. He is accusing them of rejecting truth. He, right before this, and just to set up the context, he addresses their hypocrisy. They were in the, uh, the desert, and it didn't take them, hid their fathers very long to turn from Moses. Where's Moses? Let's build a calf. And they... They create this idol and worship this thing, and they worship the moon and the stars and all that. And Stephen recalls their, that, and he claims that they're just like that. You're following in the idolatry of your fathers. So he's addressing their hypocrisy. And then we get to the text here. Stephen addresses their false understanding of the temple. Let's look at the passage here. This is from the English Standard Version, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, the tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. God gave Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and Moses followed those instructions and built it exactly how God wanted it to be built. Then he says, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So they had the tabernacle for the 40 or so, 38 years in the wilderness, and they cross over the Jordan River and they enter Canaan land and they get in the process of, of conquering the land, right? And you have the walls of Jericho and all those other uh, little uh, adventures that they go on. They established in the tabernacle in Jerusalem uh, there. So the Lord allowed the tabernacle to be brought in with, with, with uh, Joshua. So it was until the days of David, 400 years later, it was that way. We'll go to the next slide. So David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So David was a man after God's heart. God had favor with him. David thought he was going to do God a favor, and he wanted to make, he, he, you know, David says, I have a house to live in, and God's living in a tent. Let's build him a temple. It was David's idea. It wasn't God's idea. We're going to see that the temple was always designed. A tent is designed to be temporary. 
so David doesn't get to build the tent, uh, the tabernacle, I'm sorry, and God tells him that instead there's this Davidic covenant that your kingdom is going to be great and your kingdom is going to be established through your descendant and it's going to be a kingdom last forever. So David somehow thinks he must be referring to Solomon, So, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. So David actually commanded Solomon to build a house. God didn't, right? In fact, Solomon says that God never designed it this way. He did it as a result of his father, David. And then uh, verse 48, Stephen's making his point, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses. They built this house, but God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands, right? And we're going to hold off on there because he's going to refer to Isaiah's prophecy uh, in chapter 66 of Isaiah. So you have this temporary dwelling that Stephen talks about, a tent. It means the tabernacle means a dwelling place or a portable place of worship. A tent is considered short-lived. It's, it's not designed to be a continuous thing. He, Stephen calls it the tent of witness or the tabernacle of witness. And it's the idea of a testimony of future things that would happen, a figure of things to come something better that was going to come. Hebrews tells us uh, in reference to Christ being our high priest that he is a minister in the holy places and the writer of Hebrews says in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, and it has to do with Christ's presence at the right hand of God in the throne room of God. So the tabernacle was framed, Stephen says, just as God appointed Moses to do it. It was a temporary place uh, that would be replaced by a permanent one they made without hands. Something temporary to represent God uh, with the people that would go away and that there would be this permanent uh, throne, this permanent dwelling uh, that would be something God does and it's not made by human hands. The tabernacle, he says, was brought into the land of Joseph wasn't native to the Canaan land. It wasn't permanent part of Canaan land. And it's interesting that here the word Joseph, the, the name Joseph, is the New Testament name we get Jesus. And it means Jehovah saves. So that's interesting. Some commentators would say that when Joseph brought the tabernacle, he brought as a picture of salvation, deliverance. He was the one that brought the, the nation into the land. And that's a picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus does in the New Testament. In fact, Jude, Jesus' half-brother, says when Jesus delivered the Israelites from Egypt. It's interesting. When Jesus, and it's Joseph, but there's also this picture of Jesus being the deliverer. Never intended uh, the tabernacle to be uh, permanent, but that Jesus would replace that whole idea. A wonderful system, the Old Testament system. We're learning uh, more and more about that, how the animal sacrifices worked, how God was in the, the presence, God's presence was in the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest with a rope around him went into the Holy Holies once a year and offered uh, blood on the altar to atone for their sin. And that they had a constant reminder of their sin and their guilt. 
and they had to wait for those lambs and other animals to be slaughtered in order to temporarily atone for their sin. Can't help but think that they were asking the question from time, all these rules, all these regulations, all these guidelines, and uh, just things related to civil care and their personal cleanliness and all that stuff. And I can't help but them thinking to say, can't there just be someday a once and for all sacrifice for sin? Oh, yeah, there was. So we see you know, God denied David's request to build a house. In a sense, he's saying, I already have a symbol of my presence, but I cannot and will not be contained in a building. We already said God promised this idea of a kingdom or a house and a throne that would be established forever to David through his descendants, 2 Samuel 7. But David misunderstood and uh, thought that maybe meant Solomon, and so he commands Solomon to build the temple. But we know that God never commanded that himself. So Stephen's address here, he addresses the false or the misunderstanding they have about the temple. And he tries to help them understand that it was never God's intent for the temple to be something that lasted forever. And there's something better. In fact, in Matthew, if you'll put that text up there, um, the Matthew text, uh, here, Stephen speaks of one greater than the temple. This is Jesus here in this account in Matthew. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they were always looking for a way to accuse him of something, of breaking the law. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Go to the next one. So he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the, the uh, presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests to eat. So David did something that was unlawful, but he says it was, it was okay, even though the priests were sinners themselves, they could eat the bread. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, they would mess up, but they still, when they went in to on the Sabbath, they were guiltless before God as a priest. I tell you something. Here's what he says. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Ta-da! It's me, right? And if you had known what, what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. I desire repentance. And the call for mercy rather than you to continue to offer sacrifices that can never atone for sin. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And then he says this, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm, I'm the one that created the Sabbath. I'm the one in charge of the Sabbath. I'm the high priest of the Sabbath. And if you had understood that, you wouldn't have said what you said. Right? Stephen, I think, is alluding to that here in the text. So then we go back to verse 48 through 50. Stephen addresses God's presence among the people. He deals with their false understanding of the temple. And then he finishes his uh, address here by talking about the presence of God and how it's always been there. And so David wanted to build a temple. Solomon built it. 
and yet God is not in that thing. And so Stephen says this, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet uh, Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is saying that uh, God's temple is the universe, right? That uh, uh, what he created is his throne room, if you will. He says the Lord doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. And so he's quoting as a student of the Old Testament and knowing that they too would have known Isaiah 66. He's quoting that uh, text there. And his point is this. The world, I'm sorry, the whole world is God's temple. God brought Jesus into our world so that you yourself would be a temple filled with God. Frank Gabeline in his commentary says this. Stephen's assertion is neither the tabernacle or the temple was, was ever meant to be such an institutionalized feature in Israel's religion as uh, to prohibit God's future redemption activity or to halt the advance of God's plan for his people. It was never intended for the tabernacle to be the final thing, Gabeline says, or to interfere with that. But he says this, the response Stephen wants from his hearers was what God declared to be his desire for his people. And it's interesting that uh, Isaiah uh, in verse 2 is finished and, and Stephen doesn't get, according to Luke, he doesn't get to quote that part of it. So he says there that all these things are made by hand. And, and, uh, and let me go back here, Isaiah. So this is, uh, this is Stephen quoting Isaiah there and thus says the Lord heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest all these things my hands have made and so all these things came to be declared the Lord that's basically where Stephen finishes and most people think that his sermon got abruptly cut off by hecklers by people saying we've had enough in part possibly because they knew what the next verse part of the verse was going to say but this is the one to whom I look he was humble and contrite or broken in spirit and trembles at my word he was going to probably bring that up he didn't get to bring it up and they cut him off and that's the end of his sermon actually changes and then he uh, Nick will get into it Pastor Nick will get into it here in upcoming weeks where Stephen then says you stiff necked people get to finish his message. Let me just finish with it. Be patient with me here. A few more thoughts that I want to give you here because the text is not an easy text. But I think Stephen is alluding to what we would call, what New Testament writers call the mysteries of Christ. The mysteries of Christ. That God is with us and that is developed through the New Testament epistles. Uh, mystery in the New Testament is this idea of a truth that was formerly hidden and then is finally revealed, right? And there's these things that are hidden in the Old Testament that the New Testament reveals for us so we understand them. 
uh, Ephesians talks about the mystery of Christ or that the Gentiles will be fellow heirs, members of the body of Christ and partakers of the promise. That was a, a mystery to the Jews, the Gentiles in the Old Testament. Colossians 1, uh, the mystery is this, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Something different than the Old Testament. They didn't quite get that. The Spirit came and left in the Old Testament. And now we have Christ in us. The mystery of Christ being in you. Uh, Corinthians chapter 15 talks about, I think, what we call the mystery of the rapture. That we shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That was hidden in the Old Testament. It's revealed to us in the New Testament. It makes sense. 1 Timothy 3 talks about the mystery of godliness. And it's a reference to the truths of salvation and the righteousness of Christ as it relates to us, how the righteousness of Christ is applied, the gospel message is applied to us. So it weren't fully understood in the Old Testament, and I think Stephen, who had experienced transformation power of the Lord, was alluding to those mysteries that would be unfolded by the other New Testament writers. He also alludes, I think, to this whole idea of Christ being the high priest and that he came once for all. Hebrews is just loaded. There's so much there. We're not going to take time. But I think he alludes to uh, the idea that Jesus is the real tabernacle, that Jesus is the real atonement for sin, that Jesus is the real presence of God in the life of the believer, that Jesus is the final high priest, that Jesus' sacrifice took care of the sin that we have a problem with once and for all. It's all written there. If you just look at Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see a bunch of uh, references to that. And I think Stephen alludes to that even before the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews records it for us. I've got some applications for you. Um, but one last thing here. You know, Saul was there when Stephen was stoned, right? Acts chapter 9 and uh, he is in the city of Athens and he's preaching and remember now Saul was there listening to Stephen's sermon and listening to him quote from Amos listening to him quote from Isaiah and so when, when Paul uh, Saul's name was changed to Paul later uh, is speaking to the people of Athens and he's there looking at all these statues and there's a statue to the unknown God. If you'll put the next slide up, uh, here's what he says to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. That's what, that's what Stephen refers to from Isaiah, uh, the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by hand, uh, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I think Paul, as he, as he understood the gospel, I think he recalls going back and hearing what Stephen said. And I think as part of his challenge to the people of Athens, I think he uh, has that in mind. God doesn't need temples. This God is the one who made us. His throne is the heaven and the earth. Uh, he doesn't need temples. He dwells in us. Application. Can you hang in there a little longer for some applications? 
there are those who, from higher criticism, say that what Stephen says is not accurate uh, from what the Old Testament teaches. And I just want to say this. Criticism of Scripture can be refuted with diligent study of Scripture. Critics, may, um, critics try to find flaws and problems with the Scriptures, but as we study, we find out that Stephen was actually a student of the Scriptures and a student of their culture and how they would have interpreted uh, those things. So Paul tells us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, right? So we need to get busy being ready. Someone asked John MacArthur once, one of his seminary students, he said, uh, Mr. MacArthur, he said, how is it that you know all this stuff about the New Testament? What's your secret to knowing all these things about the, the New Testament? And John MacArthur says, um, there's no secret. You just sit your butt down in the chair and you start studying. <laughs> right? We need to be students of the word. Second thing, the local church needs people like Stephen. For sales Christian needs people full of wisdom and filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. Those in hell, folks, are there because they reject Christ. Whether it's first century or the 21st century, those people there that day that condemned Stephen who never came to faith and by the way earlier in the chapter says a lot of priests had turned and trusted Christ but those who didn't they're in hell today because they rejected the truth of the gospel of Christ right same is true for us today can you think of anything greater than knowing that Christ came to the earth not only to die in your place but to live in you so that you could get so that you could properly live for him. Is there anything greater than that? Think of something higher than that. Christ came to die for your sin, and that Christ came to the earth so that you could be indwelled with his spirit, so that you could live uh, successfully for him on earth. I don't think there's anything higher than that. One last one here, and then I've got an illustration uh, to you. The, the rise in resistance to the truth that we have in today's culture must be met with a rise in our stewardship of defending truth. Folks, we're living in a battle time, right? We're living with those who are defying truth, and we're called to stand up to resist that and be ready to be good stewards of the truth that we've been given. And here, like, like Stephen, God will give a special measure of grace his children who are facing extreme hardship. My sister just lost her husband and God has graciously given her what she needs to get through that and he'll do it. He, he does it for those that are going through great persecution, for those that have been martyred. He gives them the grace and the ability to get through that even if it means them being executed like Stephen in that case. It's an amazing thing. Polycarp second century follower of Christ is going to be burned at the stake and they just kept telling him recant and this won't have to happen recant, deny Christ, deny Christ otherwise we're going to nail you to a pole and we're going to burn you at the stake and Polycarp says you don't have to nail me I'll stay there and he was given the grace of God to get through his own martyrdom because he stood for the truth 
we came to faith in Christ, folks, you not only got all these benefits of Christ, but you get Christ himself. And his spirit indwells you so that the presence of God is with you regardless of where you are. Beautiful, beautiful things that happen. And Stephen is trying his best to tell these religious leaders that we didn't need this place to worship God. We can worship God anywhere, and he dwells us through his spirit. And that message is still true for us. When you go to work tomorrow, and you talk to your kids, or you work with your grandkids, or you have coworkers, or whatever it may be, the spirit of God is with us at all times dwelling in us because we are in Christ as his children. Father, thank you for the day. I pray that uh, you'll take the things away from our mind that maybe were confusing, um, things that I might not have said the way that I should have, but uh, that you'll call to our attention those things that we need to remember, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Stephen's example to us, and the wonder, the mystery of Christ in us, our blessed hope that we have. So help us now to go from this place, uh, encouraged, help us to go recognizing that we are your representatives here in this community and beyond, and help us to reflect the heart and mind of Christ because we have him dwelling in us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to share it today. In Christ's name, amen.